Chapter 12 of The Romance of Modern Electricity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Amelie Dawson. The Romance of Modern Electricity by Charles R. Gibson. Chapter 12 Interesting Applications of Electricity. What makes the electric bell ring? How indicators work? an alarm clock that will insist on its victim rising, automatic fire alarms, a room automatically kept at an even temperature, a burglar that knew too much and yet not enough, the block system on railways. In addition to the principal applications of electricity separately dealt with in the various chapters, there are manifold other uses in everyday life to which this willing servant may be put. Perhaps the commonest is the electric bell, which alone covers a wide field. Its principle is very simple and its operation interesting, and yet how many possessors of these bells have ever taken the trouble to lift off the outer case to see how the bell works? Under normal conditions, the electricity cannot get from the battery to the bell because the connecting wire is purposely broken at the push on the wall, but when anyone presses the button of the push, the two ends of the wire are pressed together and the current gets through and rings the bell. The current passes round an electromagnet, causing it to attract a lever towards it, and on the end of this lever is a gong stick, which thus coming quickly forward strikes the bell or gong. This will, of course, only make one stroke each time you send the current through by pressing the button, so bells of this kind are called single-stroke bells and are used for signaling on tramway cars and for many other purposes, but when you wish to call the attention of a servant, you prefer to have something a little more vigorous in its action. With the single-stroke bell, you could easily make a series of blows upon the gong by repeatedly pressing and releasing the push alternately. But this proceeding would be rather tiresome, so the bell is arranged to do this making and breaking of the circuit for you. Instead of leading the current directly to the electromagnet, the wire is attached to a little pillar, against which the gong stick leans when it rests, and the current must pass up this pillar and thence through the gong stick to the wire of the electromagnet. As soon as the push is pressed, the current gets through from the pillar to the magnet, which immediately attracts the gong stick forward against the gong. But as the gong stick is no longer touching the pillar through which the current was getting over to the magnet, the magnetism ceases, and the gong stick, being no longer attracted, falls back again against the pillar, whereupon the current once more gets across to the magnet. The gong stick makes another stroke falls back again, and so on, continuing to tremble between the pillar and the magnet as long as the button of the push is held in. These bells are the ones in common use and are called trembler bells. The ordinary push consists merely of two pieces of brass spring-mounted in a wooden or metal case. The wire from the battery to the bell is cut at the place where the push is to be fixed, and the two wire ends are fastened to the two brass pieces, which are normally standing clear of each other, but which are pushed together by the little ivory button, completing the circuit, which is again broken when the button is released. Before electric bells came into use, it was customary to fit up in the servants' quarters in a house quite an array of swinging bells, each of which had a different tone, and the maids were supposed to know which room was indicated by the particular sound of the bell. We all have some experience of the inadequacy of such a system through the failure of a servant to understand the language of the bells. It is possible now, with the aid of an electrical indicator or enunciator, to use only one bell for several hundreds of rooms in a large hotel. 
The wire from each push passes round a separate little electromagnet and then to the one bell so that the current will magnetize this special electromagnet as well as ring the bell. This small magnet may be made to attract a little lever and allow the flap or shutter of an indicator to fall, leaving the number of the room exposed. Or it may be made to set a small pendulum swinging, on the bob of which is carried a brightly colored disc, placed immediately over its particular number, and so on. It may also be arranged that the bell continues to ring until the attendant stops it. These continuous ringing bells are now used for many purposes and are such that when the gong stick moves forward under the first impulse, a small spring which was resting on the gong stick falls down against a contact piece and closes the circuit from the battery direct to the bell, so that when the bell has once been set in motion from the distant push, it will continue ringing until this little spring is lifted off the contact piece and again held up by the gong stick. The value of such an arrangement will be appreciated in connection with a fire alarm as it commands attention. Anyone requiring to rise early in the mornings and finding the ordinary alarm clock insufficient may remove the gong from the clock and cause the little gong stick to set in motion one of these continuous ringing bells, which will certainly give him no peace till the unwilling victim rises and replaces the contact spring. Many years ago, and before the introduction of these continuous ringing bells, I made up a reliable alarm in the following fashion. Fixing an ordinary trembler bell on the outside of a battery box, I placed a brass hinge on the top of the box, screwing down the one half of the hinge and leaving the other free to be lifted or let down on the box lid at pleasure. Underneath this movable end of the hinge, I placed a little metal plate or contact piece, fixing one wire from the battery to this so that the current could only get to the hinge when it was in contact and thence by a wire attached to the fixed half of hinge to the bell. Having removed the gong from an ordinary cheap alarm clock, I placed on the top of the clock and lying against the gong stick a round piece of metal which was attached by a string to the free end of the hinge, normally standing up away from the contact piece. When the alarm of the clock goes off, the gong stick kicks the metal piece off the top of the clock and in falling it pulls the desk hinge down onto the contact piece, completing the circuit, setting the electric bell in operation so that the would-be sleeper must bestir himself to rise and lift the hinge off the little metal plate. The apparatus is very simple and I used such an alarm for many years without finding it to fail me once, and having given several young engineers duplicates of it, I have received from them the same report. I remember one young engineer who arranged his alarm clock so that as soon as it commenced to ring, it also began to walk along the mantel shelf so that he had to make haste and check its suicidal intentions. Another young man who desired to have as long in bed as possible arranged his clock to make a preliminary and somewhat feeble alarm, but at the same time to turn on the gaslight under a small kettle arrangement, and when the water boiled, the enclosed steam blew a whistle placed on the tightly fitting lid, thus informing its master that everything was now in readiness. We now have automatic fire alarms, whereby the excessive heat of any place catching fire will close an electric circuit and give the alarm direct to the fire brigade. A simple arrangement by which heat may be made to close a circuit is a piece of curved spring made up of two flat pieces of different metals which expand at different rates, and being clamped to each other at both ends, the curved spring uncurls till it comes against a metal contact, thus completing an electric circuit, just as one does in pressing the button of a bell push. There are many other devices, but this one will serve as an illustration of how an alarm of fire may be automatically given. 
This device, which is called a thermostat, may be arranged to give an alarm if the temperature of a greenhouse rises too high or falls too low by placing the free end of the metal curve between two contact pieces so that if it either curls or uncurls a certain amount, it will come in contact with one or other of these metal stops and complete the circuit. I have seen the temperature of a room automatically kept constant by such an arrangement. Gas stoves were placed here and there around the room, and each stove was under control of a thermostat, as just described. When the temperature began to rise, the thermostat, instead of causing a bell to ring, operated an electromagnetic device which lowered the gas, or if the temperature rose sufficiently, turned the gas off altogether, leaving only a small pilot jet burning, similar to the bypass of an incandescent gas burner. When the temperature came down again, the metallic curve leaving the contact piece allowed the electromagnetic device to turn the gas on again. The room was kept by this means always at a constant temperature, never being more than half a degree above or below the desired heat. When electric heating can be obtained at a marketable price, I have no doubt that it will be a common practice to have the temperature of our houses and offices automatically controlled. What a boon it will be to the household to dispense with troublesome fireplaces. If it is desired to know exactly when some liquid reaches a definite temperature, it is an easy matter to make up an ordinary mercury thermometer for the purpose. The wire from the battery is passed through the glass bulb so that it is in contact with the mercury while another wire enters the long stem at the place where the specified temperature is marked off, so that as soon as the mercury rises to this point, the current will find a passage through the mercury from the wire in the bulb up the stem to the other wire and thence to the alarm bell. Electricity is called in as a detective to prevent burglars entering a house unnoticed. The opening of a window or a door completes a circuit and a bell rings in the master's room. In America, where burglar alarms are more common than in this country, houses are sometimes connected up to the nearest police station so that an alarm may be given if the house is tampered with while it is unoccupied. I remember hearing of a burglar who detected one of these wires which led to the police station and correctly guessing what it was, the burglar took the precaution to cut the line of communication between the window and the police office before attempting to force an entrance. No doubt he would congratulate himself upon his foresight, and possibly he may have been a little more deliberate about his work than he would otherwise have been, for while he was still busy opening the window, he found himself in the clutches of the law. The secret of the surprise was that the wire leading away to the local police office was carrying a very weak current, which kept a magnetic needle at the police office, deflected to one side. If a window or door was opened, the wire was broken thereby, and with the stoppage of the current, the little magnet at the police station was no longer deflected, and on reaching its normal position, it made a contact and set an alarm bell going. So in the above case, the burglar sent the alarm by cutting the wire before he attempted to open the window. The application of these burglar alarms has been so developed that the intruder may be photographed while tampering with a safe. A very clever capture was made some years ago in America by an electrical alarm which set off a flashlight and pulled the trigger of a camera directed to take a view of the front of the safe. In this way, the burglar was unconsciously photographed and was easily recognized by the police authorities. There is an almost endless variety of uses to which electricity may be adapted for giving alarms and signals of one kind or another, but the one particular application which stands out preeminently is that of signaling between railway signal cabins. Our present complicated railway traffic would be quite impossible but for the aid of electricity. 
Doubtless, everyone knows something of the block system of railway working, but as there often seems to be an unnecessary mystery as to what this really means, it will be well to explain the principle. The railway is divided into sections, or blocks, there being a signal cabin at the entrance and the exit of each block, so that one signal cabin controls the exit from one block and the entrance to the next. To take the simplest case of a cabin, which is merely a passing place and not a junction, and having only one up and one down track to control. In addition to his ordinary telegraph instruments and signaling bells by which the signalman can communicate with the cabin on either side of him, he has a special needle instrument for indicating whether there is a train in his section or not. It will be remembered that in a needle telegraph, the little magnet being pivoted at its center remains vertical or upright when at rest, but if a current is sent through the coil in one direction, the magnet will be deflected to the right, while a current sent in at the opposite end of the coil will deflect the needle to the left, so that the needle has three distinct positions, upright, slanting to the right, and slanting to the left, any of which it may be made to take up at will and remain there as long as the current is left on. The dial of the indicating telegraph is marked off so that when the needle is standing upright it points to the words line blocked, which signifies that the semaphore signals are set at danger, but that there is no train on the section between the cabins. When the needle is deflected to the right, it points to the words line clear, which informs the signalman that the section has been prepared to receive a train, the outdoor semaphore signals having been lowered. Slanting to the left, the needle points to the words train on line, meaning that a train is actually passing between the cabins. This special telegraph instrument we will call the block instrument. The working of these signals may be simply illustrated by supposing that we are in the central cabin, number two, having number one to our right and number three to our left. A train is on its way from number one to number two, so number two telegraphs to number three asking him in code if his line is clear. This he does on his ordinary telegraph apparatus. If the train may proceed, number three answers in code that the line is clear, and he also puts his block instrument to line clear, which at the same time makes number two's block instrument point to the same words. The needles remain in this position so that number three cannot forget that he has given permission for a train to come on, and number two, looking at his indicator, has confidence in sending on the train, and he can therefore set his outdoor signals to the clear position, the semaphore signal being analogous to a policeman who holds out his arm to stop the traffic and drops it to his side to let the driver know he may pass. The engine driver must not dare to go past the policeman signal when the arm is up. When the train is entering number three section from number two, the latter signalman must telegraph to number three, saying, train entering section, and number three must acknowledge it and change the block instrument in his own and number two's cabin to train online, where it will remain as a constant reminder to both men that there is a train in their section. When the train has passed number three and gone into the fourth section, number three advises number two by telegraph train out of section and also moves their block instruments to line blocked. There are many varieties of block signaling instruments, but the one just described will serve to illustrate the principle. I have often found people giving an entirely wrong meaning to the block system, believing that it is impossible for a signalman to allow a train to pass when the line is not clear because of some connection between the outdoor signals or the train itself and the telegraph apparatus but in the ordinary block system in general use, there is no such connection.
The conditions of working are just such as have been briefly indicated here, in which the block telegraph may be regarded merely as a safeguard in making the instructions from one signal cabin to the next quite clear and permanent till the duties have been performed. But it is a possibility for the man at number three to signal train out of section to number two before the train has really passed. And in the same way, it is possible, though fortunately not very probable, that number two may send on a train without getting permission to do so. The block system does not relieve the signalman of his responsibilities and reduce him to a mere automaton, as some people are inclined to think. But its great advantage is that the needle keeps pointing to the instructions until they have been made use of. There is a method called the lock and block system in which the outdoor mechanical signals are really connected to the circuit controlling the block telegraph so that when line clear is signaled, the telegraph is locked in that position until the train, when passing the outdoor signal, depresses a lever, thus releasing the semaphore arm, which in turn operates the block telegraph. This system, however, is not in general use. If the signalman's duties were merely routine work, this lock-and-block system might come into more general use, but as his duties are such that he cannot be merely an unthinking automaton, he is provided with a key by which he can disconnect this lock-and-block arrangement and act as necessity requires, and in this there may be possible confusion. Apart altogether from these block systems, there is an interlocking at junctions between the semaphore signal and the railway points so that the signalman cannot lower his signal until he has moved the points, and he cannot put the points back again until he has put the signal to danger. But this is merely a mechanical arrangement. The signalman usually supplies the energy required to move the outdoor signals and points, these being connected with pulling wires and moving levers, but there are now some places equipped with small electromotors to supply the necessary movements. End of chapter 12